I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Happy Juneteenth, everyone. Much like Independence Day, Juneteenth is a holiday that honors freedom and liberation. More specifically, it honors the liberation of African-Americans from enslavement in this country. Even though that liberation came later than it should have, one thing we can do here in the present moment is celebrate days like this, even while we know that it's a long road to true freedom for all. Another thing we can do is look honestly at the past. In that spirit, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of a This Is Nashville episode from April. It's about Fort Nagley and the post-emancipation neighborhood that grew at the base of the hill where the fort still stands. But first, Nashville has been selected as one of 14 cities to be a part of an urban heat mapping project, which will gather data about which parts of our city are the hottest. How will this data be collected? How will it be used? And why is it important? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Dr. Adele Monteblanco, Assistant Professor of Sociology at MTSU. Dr. Monteblanco, welcome to This is Nashville. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Really thrilled to have you with us. Maybe we can start with the basics. Can you explain what is urban heat mapping? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me today. So urban heat mapping in a nutshell um, means that we're going to map where heat builds up in Music City, um, especially during hot weather events. And so what we'll be able to see is areas of excessive heat in our community. And that gives us data to better adapt to our changing climate um, and keep communities healthy. Well, how is it done? Yeah, good question. Um, with a lot of thoughtful and committed volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need volunteers to serve as drivers and as navigators in a day in August. And what we need from these drivers, this is how we collect the data, is that the drivers will have a sensor mounted to the passenger side of their car. Don't panic. There is no permanent damage to your car. Um, but it's placed on the window. Um, and the sensor uh, collects data as they drive around. So it collects data on ambient temperature, on humidity and GPS. And it does this every second as they drive around Nashville. And what that means is we have we will have tens of thousands of data points to understand temperature variability across our city. Um, so that's what the drivers will be doing. And importantly, I'll note that they will be on particular tracks. They are pre-planned routes that we will send them on. Because we, what we want is for them to drive across parts of Nashville with different types of land cover. So we want them to drive past schools and parks and industrial spaces. And so we can really get an understanding of how all that plays out um, in trapping heat in our cities. I I also wanna note that we need navigators for these drivers because the drivers ideally stay on these routes. Um, And so the navigators will sit in the passenger side and make sure that they're turning left when they're supposed to, turning right when they're supposed to, et cetera. Um, And so these volunteers will work together um, during a day in August and they will drive around. Ideally, at three times. They'll drive in the early morning, the afternoon, and the late evening on this um, particular route that we send them on and collect data for us. So what's the plan with this data? Yeah, that's a really important question, and it has been driving much of our interest in this project. 
Um, and so as we see campaigns across the country and across the globe who have done these in prior sum summers, um, this data collection helps us plan for a hotter climate and keep people safe. Um, and so, for example, other cities have used the data to identify places, neighborhoods, areas in our city that have um, that are in need of the most intervention. So that might be tree canopy, that might be cooling centers um, or shade sales at bus stops. If we understand where our residents are experiencing the most heat exposure, then we can intervene in the most appropriate ways. What dangers does extreme heat pose? Yeah, so your um, the wonderful conversation that happened on Friday uh, with the meteorologist and other leaders in the community noted that heat is more than just a nuisance. It's more than just a discomfort. And there are very real dangers to heat exposure to our bodies, especially as um, was mentioned on Friday early on in the summer. Um, and so we see when people are waiting for the bus or they're um, taking their kids to the park or out on a bike ride, um, we have to be careful about how much heat they are exposed to because the body can handle only so much um, and there are dangers to their health um, that they need to look out for. So talk to me about what is known as the urban heat island effect. I mean, that's not an island any of us want to be on, right? No. Uh, so urban areas are especially prone to high temperatures. So we have all these hard and dark surfaces in urban environments. This includes buildings and roads. Um, we also have limited vegetation and we have these these heat producing factors that that we are doing as humans so we are using cars we are we have industrial activity we have air conditioners and all of that is emitting heat so all of that coming together is the urban heat island effect and i think a lot of us see it in practice as we move around the city especially on hot days and so for example i'd ask your listeners to think about on a really hot day if you're walking around without shoes, would you rather be on grass or would you rather be on a sidewalk? And that's a really easy um, thing for most of us to answer, um, to keep our feet cool. We'd rather be on the grass. And that's because surfaces um, hold in heat in very different ways. Your, your, um, some of the individuals that you, the unhoused individuals that you interviewed on Friday referenced how hot it can be on the sidewalk against the asphalt, even at two o'clock in the morning. That's the urban heat island effect, holding and trapping in that heat, even at night. It means that we don't get much respite during um, during our evenings and early mornings when, when we'd like to cool off and we can't. Okay, I let my cats out at night and the first thing they do is head to the lawn and lay down. So mm -hmm, I, that I, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're brilliant. So I, <laughs> I feel like I have to ask this question whenever we talk about our environment. But how does climate change factor into all of this? So the climate crisis is increasing the frequency, severity um, of heat waves across our country and globe. Um, and that exacerbates the urban heat island effect. Um, and so the urban heat island effect would actually be occurring in our lives even without the climate crisis, but it is worsened by the climate crisis as we experience more heat waves. What about local governments? What can they do to make changes? Um, 
there's a lot of different ideas, a lot of different resources. They could provide cooling centers. They could do more outreach. They could send more messaging out. Um, but one of the reasons, you know, this is led in part by the mayor's office. Um, and so the government is taking time and attention to think about the urban heat island effect, who is most vulnerable, and really identify the communities in Music City um, that have the highest rates of exposure. That is Dr. Adele Monteblanco, Assistant Professor of Sociology at MTSU. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Adele. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, in honor of Juneteenth, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our April episode on Fort Nagley and the historic post-emancipation Bass Street neighborhood. It's a rich piece of our history that you won't want to miss. Stay with us. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. This hour, we're talking about Fort Nagley. It's the largest inland stone fortification built during the Civil War. You've probably driven by it a thousand times, but it's kind of hard to see. It sits on the south side of St. Cloud Hill, just opposite of the Adventure Science Center to the north. Fort Nagley was sort of a centerpiece for the Union Army in Nashville. Many of the formerly enslaved people who built it and fought to defend it ended up settling in the area, which later became known as the Bass Street neighborhood, Nashville's first post-emancipation black neighborhood. We'll get back to Fort Nagley in a moment, but first, let's spend some time on Bass Street. Today, Bass Street is barely a street at all, a stretch of about a thousand feet or so, but it wasn't always that way. A few times a month, we're gonna take you into the city with us, to show you an ordinary street corner, a vacant grocery store, the side of an office building. I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound very exciting. Our goal is to take you back in time, to bring our history to life and to show you what our city has been. Today, we're dropping a pin on the foot of St. Cloud Hill, where the Bass Street Baptist Church stood back in the early 1900s. Back in October, I met a small group there, conservationists, historians, archaeologists who had unearthed some of the church's foundation and former residents like Philip Minter. Growing up, I lived right across the street right there where that pole is. I grew up right there at 614 Bad Street. My grandparents lived up here. We had a double outhouse that everyone in this, on this side of the street had to use that, that bathroom, so. Yeah, about that. The city didn't run plumbing or electricity to this area, but that didn't stop them from having fun and being, you know, kids. I played all back up and through there. That was my, how you see it, my stomping ground. So that's where I played at, and this right here was where, where the church was at. He's talking about the original location of the Bass Street Church. Philip says the church was the community. His grandfather was a deacon there. Vernus Scruggs remembers him well. He never missed the service. Now, Philip's grandpa, the deacon, was a double amputee who used a wheelchair, which sounds like it may have been a challenge given the church sat at the base of one very steep hill. But Vernus says it was no problem. His grandfather, with no legs, would roll down this hill with his wheelchair to the foot of the steps, sit on the steps, scoot himself up the steps, with a wheelchair one on. Wow. 
until he got to the top and go and go and then he'd get back in the wheelchair. Vernus attended these services nearly every Sunday. When the church was first built, this was it was just a dugout here. When and the dugout, they put a basement. We had service in the basement for years, up, up until around the early 40s. That's when the upper part of the church was finally finished. This church was the last thing on the hill beside the fort. The fort started there and went on over. A lot has changed since then. The church was torn down, though it kept its name through several relocations. But back when it was here, on Bass Street, Vernus remembers exploring the area as a kid every Sunday. It was really only because of the conversations they had at home that Vernus knew anything about Fort Nagley and its significance at all. We couldn't wait for Sunday school to be out on Sunday morning and a whole bunch of kids just run up, run up and explore the fort. And everything was on the fort at that time. Even, even, even some, some old cannons and, 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 and old mini balls, all, kind, all kinds of wash that was still stored all over the place. And little by little, they, they kind of cleaned it up and took it over to the museum. They never really talked about the Battle of Nashville a lot in school. They, I mean, they mentioned it, it was a battle of nation, but nobody ever talked about it in the detail. And nobody, uh, until uh, when school was gone on, they never even mentioned that, that it was actually the, the black soldiers that built this fort and actually defended it. This kind of erasure took shape in more ways than one. Part of the reason the Bass Street Church had to move is because of the installment of I-40. Urban renewal split the thriving Bass Street neighborhood right in half. They cut all these houses out and brought the interstate through here. So, and that's when they made all us move to the housing projects. Did you all try to fight it at all? We couldn't fight it. It wasn't no fight. It wasn't no fight. We had to move. They told us it was that's how it was going to be, and the interstate had to come through here, and we had to move. And that was just the bottom line. But like I was telling them. Our house could have still been right there, right today. I'm just sitting back looking, you know, our house could have still been right there. Too many times history is just wiped out for the sake of advancement or tomorrow, and we throw away yesterday. And so thank you so much for holding on to it. It's why we're here today. Reverend Darrell Thompson is just one of many gathered in an effort to set the record of this place, to keep its history alive, in part, with a naming ceremony led by Janine Blackman of the African-American Cultural Alliance. We do a little ceremony where we invite the ancestors here and um, we're going to, as it is, amen, we say ashe after we call a name. And it's just a way to acknowledge their presence. And the first time I came here, I actually felt, I still feel them, and I feel like that land is being healed for Negley as well as this land because so much has happened here that was unpleasant, but I feel like the land has actually been healed. So we're gonna call the names and after each name, or family group, we'll say Ashe. In all, Janine reads more than 40 names. Ashe. Mothers, fathers, George Green, grandparents, and family. Children. children were Sally, Edward, John, and Abraham. Ashe. In the end, Janine asks if anyone else has a name they want the group to recognize. I want to acknowledge my uh, great-great-grandfather, U.S. Colored Troops, yes. uh, Peter Miller. I should. 
Joining me now is Janine Blackman, whose voice you just heard. She is a descendant of a Bash Street resident and the president of the African-American Cultural Alliance. Janine, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Glad to have you with us. So tell us more about your connection to the Bash Street neighborhood. The Bass Street neighborhood was a neighborhood that everyone um, in the city, um, it, it was a community. It was a, it was a really nice community where everyone lived, where people, families and grocery stores and a church, the Bass Street Community Church, where they had church service. They built a church by them, their own hands. They made the bricks, they built the church. They had a um, little walnut factory where the kids would skate. And there was actually a place where people went to listen to music. When the interstate came through, it divided the city. Some lived on the other side of Bass Street and the others lived on the side of the fort. And they weren't able to uh, connect with family as easily and the children had to walk a longer distance to school. What's your connection to the Bass Street neighborhood? I have a great, great aunt who lived near Bass Street and she actually had a um, halfway house where she would um, rent rooms. She was an older woman and that's my connection to Bass Street. Now, how long did your great great aunt live there? She lived there until she did lived on the other side where the interstate was. So she was able to stay there a little while, but everyone was uprooted and so I think it changed her business quite a bit because a lot of the people had to move into the housing development up on Hillside, Edge Hill. And so a lot of the folks who were there moved on in because, you know, in reality, they had heat and uh, running water, which wasn't uh, provided where they were living before in Bass Street. Now, earlier we heard from Vernis Scruggs, a former resident of Bass Street. He said the history of the neighborhood was mainly told through the oral tradition. Did your great, great aunt and your grandparents and family members, did they tell you stories about the neighborhood? All the stories where we, we learn about our history was in church or through our elders. We did not learn about our history in school. So whatever I know is from my, um, my tradition. I belong to the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is one of the oldest churches that's all about history. And the people in our community were people who were making change. So they were people who were part of the sit-ins. There were people who helped build the fork. There were people who were here for, you know, hundreds of years. So we were, I was always interested in history. So I would sit at their feet. I was eager to learn about history. In fact, I talked to someone recently who lived not far from the Bass Street community who was explaining why people were uh, displaced. Why is learning this history so important to you? I feel that Nashville has changed so much. If I don't pass on the history to my children and my grandchildren, the history will be lost. In fact, just talking to um, the older um, person that I was talking with, I learned something new. You know, oftentimes they leave out gaps of information because buildings were still present. But now that the buildings are no longer there, it's really important. Tell me more about this new thing that you learned from the elder you spoke with. Well, she said that um, when the interstate came through, it divided, it divided the city greatly. So like if you were going to a church on one side of the, of the 
the interstate was like the bridge to get across. Mm-hmm. You know, the street, the, the main street, it was the main street where affluent people lived and it went from one side of the interstate all the way over to the other. And that's how you would travel to school. That's how people would get to the store or to church. And so when, that, when the interstate came through, you know, we're talking about now, it would probably be a brief drive across, you know, a detour. But for them, they were walking. That was a major change for them. So they would have to rethink how they were doing things. And, you know, and, and fortunately, our church was on the other side. So um, most of my family was still able to attend their church. But those who attended Bass Street had to rethink, you know, where, where are we going to go to church now? What, you know, how is our community? They divided communities. And think about those communities. In that community was your grandmother, your aunt, your uncle, um, you know, family. When you hear these stories... Like, what goes through your imagination? Do you try to put yourself in the place of these folks back then? Absolutely, I do. I think about, um, well, my grandmother would always have Sunday dinners. So I'm sure they had Sunday dinners, which were fabulous, where you would have homemade ice cream, um, you know, turner greens, macaroni cheese, sweet potatoes, you know. I'm sure that the children were playing after they worked probably six days a week from sunup to sundown. That this is the time that you would dress, you know, young ladies would get their hair done and gentlemen would have a haircut and family was just so well connected. I think now it's more of a challenge to connect families. Then families were stronger and the community was stronger. So if someone was in need of something, your neighbor would help. If there was a mother who was having a hard time raising her children, the neighbors would help. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about Fort Nagley and the old Bash Street neighborhood as the city develops a new master plan for the fort's future. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Dr. Angela Sutton is a Vanderbilt professor and the director of the Fort Nagley Descendants Project. Angela, welcome to the show. Hi, Khalil. It's so nice to be here. Pleasure to have you with us. So, you know, tell me, what is the Fort Nagley's Descendants Project and how did you become involved? Sure. Um, it's kind of a, a roundabout story. Um, back in 2017, uh, the mayor of Nashville had sold part of Fort Nagley Park for development. It was going to become condos. Um, and, you know, as a historian, I, I just I couldn't I couldn't with that. So I came to one of the meetings, one of the public meetings to see how I could help. Um, and at the meeting, I met with uh, Gary Burke, who I think you'll be talking to later, and a couple of other descendants who were wearing uniforms. Um, and they had very strong feelings about the selling of public lands that their ancestors had fought and died on. Um, and as I spoke to them, they, they said, like, is there a way that we can have people hear us? Like, what, what can we do? Um, and at the time, I worked at the Digital Humanities Lab at Vanderbilt. And I was like, I have all this equipment. Let me figure it out. Um, so we got together and I recorded their stories um, and started uh, finding ways to use them in research and uh, put them front front and center where people could hear them and learn more about this forgotten history of Fort Negley. Give us a historical breakdown of this place. I mean, how was Fort Negley created? Sure, yeah. Um, so what what's so fascinating about Fort Negley, and Miss Janine really has touched on um, so many of these important um, themes of like displacement, right? So Fort Negley has all these interesting valences that cover such a wide part of Nashville's history, but also our country's history. So it really kind of goes beyond just the city. Um, but for the sake of the city, right, you have, first of all, during the times of slavery, uh, people either self-emancipated and ran for this fort because they knew that behind Union lines, slave 
catchers couldn't re-enslave them. So they would come and hide behind the Union lines and then be put to work. Um, other people were forced by Union soldiers, were pulled off of plantations, were pulled out of churches and forced to build. Um, and then other people came, other free black people came and offered their labor in exchange for a payment, which they got um, in order to build this fortress, right? And we have, um, I have a grant from the NEH and from the National Park Service uh, to create a database of everybody who came to build Fort Negley and everybody who defended it in the Battle of Nashville. And from this, we know that there were women and there were children. Um, the youngest person to help build Fort Negley was Moses McGavick, who was just 11 years old. Hmm. So that is a that is the, that's kind of how it begins, right? Then we have the Civil War. Fort Negley is really important in defending the city in the Battle of Nashville. We have thirteen thousand people who were in the segregated regiments of the U.S. Army, right? The USCT who defended it in eight regiments. Then during Reconstruction, these same veterans who fought in the Civil War, who won their freedom through bloodshed, they settled at the foot of Bass Street and started one of the first black neighborhoods right alongside Edge Hill and Cameron Trimble. Then skip forward to the 1950s, of course, we have urban renewal, which once again displaces the community and forces people who had thought of themselves as family, who had bled together in the Civil War and thought of themselves as family to split apart and find new ways of being in Middle Tennessee. Um, and now, of course, the same community is facing gentrification as they're once again being pushed out of their communities. So when you look at the history of Fort Negley, what it really is, is the history of the ways in which cities, states, and countries inflict spatial violence on our black communities. Take me back to Fort Nagley and the at the beginning of the Bass Street neighborhood. Tell me more about how the people lived at during this time. Like how were they able to really create a community? Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's something that uh, without descendants, we wouldn't know. Um, so just a few years ago, nobody um, in the academic community knew really about Bass Street. Of course, people who had lived there knew about it. Um, and uh, as some archeologists from MTSU began digging at the site just to explore it, to see what was there, uh, they found so many intact cultural deposits of this community. And that really helped us to see the ways in which some of these first free black Americans lived in the city. Um, it was incredibly fascinating to find so many like household items, so many items that belong to women and children, especially. Um, one of the things that I found the most interesting was a bottle of medication. Uh, that was for menopause. Um, and this medication was created by the neighbor of Frederick Douglass. She was a staunch abolitionist um, and she had a large, a large black customer base because of that. Um, we also found lots of like marbles um, and things that children used, harmonicas, um, things they used in cooking. And we found that people of Bass Street, they, um, they were very resourceful, right? They used whatever things they could. So they pulled material from the fort, they went to the train tracks and they uploaded pieces of coal that had been burnt on the steam engines and used that to level the piece, uh, level the land right on the hill of that fort so that they could build on level, on level plains. Um, and you can kind of like see the way they put those first houses in and then how those neighborhoods um, slowly swelled with people, right? Uh, it's it was incredibly fascinating to see um, and very touching as well to see how when you ask descendants uh, and you look at the database, you can see that people who fought together in the war lived together at Bass Street and then became one another's families. Paying attention to the time period where all this happened, I have a question. You know, did the Bass Street neighborhood face threats to their existence? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Every black neighborhood did uh, during Reconstruction and after, you know, um, once the union pulled out, 
uh, and kind of left the South to reconstruct itself. Black people were the ones who were left to reconstruct themselves. Uh, and as the Bass Street neighborhood was trying to do that, the KKK would often, uh, with their horses, come up through the neighborhood, destroying whatever they could find in their wake and going up to the top of the hill and burning crosses because that was the hill that represented black triumph, right? It was the hill where black people had taken up arms against their former enslavers and said, no, we're gonna build a new union. We're not fighting for the old union. We're creating a union that's better in every way than the old union was. Um, and because of that, the KKK chose that hill as a place to make their points. Um, but then there's this wonderful story um, by, that Betsy Phillips uncovered about Leander Woods, who was one of the veterans of the Battle of Nashville. He lived over in the Napier community and he would come up to Fort Negley um, and he wanted to help the Bass Street residents. And so he and his veteran friends bought up all the gunpowder in Nashville and engaged the KKK in an armed conflict that ceased their operations. After that, I've checked Nashville newspapers for 30 years after that event. I can't find any instance of the KKK up on that hill. Wow, Janine, did you know that? Have you heard that story before? No, I haven't. It's pretty, that's pretty incredible. That's, that's a wonderful story. What does that make you think about when you hear something like that? It makes me think about how wonderful my ancestors are. That, you know, they, you, you can't stop us. We're going to fight. We're going to keep doing our best to, to make our community great, no matter what. And so I'm sure that the men were like, what can we do to stop this? So found the money and bought up all the gunpowder and no longer could they go burn crosses. Now, we heard a little bit earlier about the naming ceremony and I was there. It was very, very powerful. Janine, can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of that? Why you all decided to hold that ceremony? Naming ceremonies has been a, a part of the African-American Cultural Alliance tradition for some time. We call the names of our ancestors so they never be forgotten. And it gives... Um, people who are in attendance an opportunity to also name their family members and we keep the tradition going it's so important to remember the names of those who who've gone on all right now when you have ceremonies like this and i was there i didn't see a great number of young people and where we're going now how much do you want young people to be active and to take hold of this collective history that we all have I want them to take hold. And I think that you'll see more and more young people participating. Last year during our Juneteenth celebration, young people were present. We're planning this year's Juneteenth celebration at Fort Negley and young people are planning. Um, we have young people who are joining hands with us to celebrate Juneteenth. Of course, a lot of these young people, they didn't really know about the fort until last year when we had a fireworks and we sort of, invite them to join in with other things that they really like, like, um, you know, activities and food trucks and things like that. So it worked. We had fireworks, young people came, and this year they helped planning the celebration. That annual event took place yesterday at Fort Negley Park, and it was a blast. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast of our April episode about the rich history of Fort Negley and the Bass Street neighborhood. After the break, We'll look into the current state of Fort Nagley and talk about the pending master plan that will dictate its future. Stay with us. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been learning about some of the history of Fort Nagley and the old Bass Street neighborhood. 
places that hold great significance to many Black Nashvilleans. The city is working now to develop a new master plan for the future of the fort. On a chilly night last November, a crowd gathered at Rose Park Middle School for the first in a series of community meetings to tell city planners what they'd like to see. Our producer, Steve Harouche, was there. Yes, sir. This is my school. I went to school here back in the 60s. Wanda Moore still lives nearby and remembers going to explore the fort as a child. She's excited about the possibilities for preserving the history there. The people that I've been talking to so far here are concerned not only for the future of Fort Nagley, but the community and the structures that they may have had, a, the soldiers may have had a part in building too. They want to maintain the look of the community and keep it nice. There are probably a hundred people packed into the gymnasium. There's a scale model of Fort Negley and the surrounding hillside, and plenty of whiteboards full of pictures. So my name is Edward Henley, with Pillars Development, part of the HDLA team that's, that's conducting this with Parks. On one of the boards, people are putting green dots on ideas they like. So we have a, um, a stone labyrinth as well as an outdoor classroom, very, very cognizant of uh, gathering spaces represented by stone and, and, and rock, so they of course are appropriate for the site, but also a clear identifier that they're gathering spaces. We also have some images of memorials, so statues, um, stone walls that can be etched and engraved to really give us a, a sense of contemplation and, and memory and history. These have gotten a lot of green dots. In fact, the green dots are all gone, but people are definitely using the red dots too. Those are for ideas they don't like. But as you can see here, we've had a lot of clear um, identification of things that people definitely like, and some things that people feel very strongly aren't appropriate for the site. So definitely the kind of feedback that we wanted from the exercise. The inappropriate stuff includes things like soccer fields and outdoor exercise equipment. At another station, writer Sianna Rouse leads a more open-ended exercise. She's asking people to write down their impressions of what Fort Negley evokes for them. I need all the language, all the thoughts. You can really sense a buzz of excitement and optimism. Liz Atak is a board member with the Friends of Fort Negley, and she says she hopes the new master plan will find a way to honor all the complex layers of history that intersect there. And there's definitely one idea she put a green dot on. And selfishly, because I have a child, I would love, I lo I'm all in for the, the, um, the fort-themed play space. I think I would enjoy it as an adult, too. <laughs> Joining me now in studio is Gary Burke. He is a Civil War reenactor whose great-grandfather was a soldier who served at Fort Negley. Gary, welcome to This is Nashville. Khalil, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, sir. I'm curious, so tell me, how often do you visit Fort Negley? At least twice a month. When I was retired, I went every day. I go almost daily to reflect and to remember. So when you do that in your reflection, you walk around, what comes to your mind as you're walking around Fort Nagley? I think about what my ancestors might be doing that time of morning as I'm walking and thinking about how their life actually played out as an enslaved person there at Fort Nagley, what it would be like to wake up in bondage and suffrage. 
when you're thinking about their days, and a lot of times, you know, our imaginations can take us places. What does it feel like, like in 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 your body? Where do your emotions go? Uh, it's a very emotional time. Uh, I wrote a poem about Fort Negley years ago, talking about uh, those feelings and about how Fort Negley is in our hands now, uh, as a city, to take care of her. Do you get angry? Do you, are you saddened? I I never get angry. I do get saddened and melancholy thinking about the 600 to 800 estimated that died building the fort. Those who slept out in the elements, those who died of disease, those who may have died of work incidents building the fort. I think about those forgotten ones. Now, I mentioned earlier that your great-grandfather served at Fort Negley. How did you find that fact out? Uh, it was actually my great-great-grandfather. His name was Peter Bailey. He was a private with the 17th Regiment of the U.S. Colored Troops. I actually found that out uh, through a fellow historian named Brian Allison who was doing a report at Fort Negley and found out that his regiment was there at Fort Negley. I knew he fought in the Battle of Nashville, but I didn't know his regiment was actually at Fort Negley. Does that make you feel more connected to the place? Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, talk to me about that. I mean, I've been in places where my ancestors have walked on that land and done very important things, and you kind of get this certain, like, vibrant action going on in your cells and in your being, you know? So, like, do you feel similar? What happens? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, the fact that I was a reenactor for several years before I even learned that my DNA was actually at Fort Negley is kind of amazing. I've been at Fort Negley since 2007. Uh, even before the visitor center was built, we were up there on the hill. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention Mr. Bill Radcliffe, who was one of the first on the scene at Fort Negley, identifying with the U.S. Colored Troops, dressing in uniform, and just talking to people who came by. Tell me more about the reenactment scene. What's it like? Well, we were there several times a year, uh, Memorial Days, sometimes Flag Days, uh, Veterans Day, and more notably around the anniversary of the Battle of Nashville, which is December 15th and 16th. Usually we have a memorial weekend nearest to the battle dates. Do you all, what type of activities do you engage in? Well, we set up tents like a camp. We do more living histories. Uh, we just tell the stories of the soldiers and relate to the public who come on site. And it's something that you get to tell the story of your great-great-grandfather when you do this. I, I do. And the U.S. Colored Troops. There were 20,133 African Americans who served from the great state of Tennessee in the Union Army for the Civil War. The city is working on a new master plan for the fort and the surrounding park. Dr. Angela Sutton is still with us. She is the director of the Fort Negley Descendants Project. Angela, for people who may not be aware, explain to us what is the master plan and why is it so important to the future of the fort? Well, when you say what is the master plan, uh, we don't exactly know yet. Hmm. <laughs> so the master plan in progress. Uh, it, it's something that HDLA, uh, Hodgson Douglas uh, Landscape Architects, are putting together with the help of historians. Uh, Dr. Lee Williams at TSU is working with them as well um, in order to uh, kind of figure out with the help of the community what is the most appropriate way to, um, to kind of uh, rehabilitate this park and turn it into something that we can all be very proud of. 
Um, and it's incredibly important because I, I just, you know, I, I want to emphasize that all of Fort Negley Park, that entire hill and all of the surrounding public lands, they, they all belong to the public, right? They all belong to us together. Um, and we could use this space in a way that enriches the city and helps us to honor our shared history. Um, but it's really important that we not ignore the history of public land in Nashville and across the wider region, right? For too long, public land meant whites only. So you had black people who were paying taxes to, to maintain these public lands um, that they were not allowed to be on. Uh, and I think that's something that when you take into consideration the fact that not only did enslaved people build this fort, but then formerly enslaved people defended it in the Battle of Nashville. And then people from the Bass Street community who lived all along that hill, right where the Adventure Science Center is currently, um, all of those people were, their ancestors were not allowed to be on public lands uh, that were not for black people. Um, and so I, I think like when you really look at this, like this history um, and this deep injustice, you kind of see that, you know, as a state, we Tennesseans, we Nashvillians, we pride ourselves on heritage. Um, but then why have we allowed this black heritage to be disrespected? And that's why this master plan is so important. It's an opportunity for us to show up for the descendant community and let everyone know that we support what they want on the park. The park is for everybody, but descendants should have the first say as to what goes there and what happens there and what is respectful there. Gary, you were at the community meeting we just heard a little bit about. So tell me, what do you want to see in the master plan? Well, uh, being a part of the master plan process, um, more so a memorial to honor the enslaved, uh, something that the community can have pride in, that can use use the space uh, for preservation purposes as well as memorial purposes. The foundation of Fort Negley is the 2,771 enslaved people who built it. They must be remembered and must not be forgotten. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking about the future of Fort Negley and the historic Bass Street neighborhood. So at the community forum we visited earlier in this segment, there was also a panel discussion. TSU history professor Larotha Williams made the case that the fort is not just important, but essential to Nashville's identity. Here's what he said. One thing I want everybody in this room to know about that fort is that when African Americans arrived in this town, they came to that site. They didn't come to Nashville empty-handed, even though oftentimes most of them only had the clothes on their back. And I humbly submit to you that what they brought with them makes the Nashville we see today. I defy anybody in this audience to tell me that Nashville is a music city without taking into consideration the songs that our ancestors brought here, the songs that they might have raised up in the cotton fields and the tobacco fields, their hope for the future and how they define liberty. That's powerful. This idea that it's not just African-American history here, but the foundation of what makes Nashville special. Janine Blackman is still with us. Janine, what's your reaction to what Dr. Williams said? I, I totally agree with what Dr. Williams is saying. He is a wonderful person. It's also helping keep our history alive. Uh, Gary is online and Angela. Without community support, 
the, the fort is definitely always state. When the city decides to um, make changes to areas, the first places to go usually are areas of history where African-Americans lived. Every day in this city, I feel as though a piece of my history has been taken away. Every corner, there's something missing. So as a little girl growing up in Nashville and then moving to Williamson County, which is also changing, I'm just thankful for everyone in the community that's trying to keep our history alive. The master plan is great. We just want to see the master plan happen. In 2019, UNESCO named Fort Negley a site of memory and added the fort to a registry of places significant for their association with slavery. That's let not just the city, but the world know that this place is special. Janine, why is it important to educate people about this area? And what does that mean? It means the world to me. So the world should know about Fort Negley and the world will know about Fort Negley. The Juneteenth celebration this year, we're going to have it on television. We're going to have it on Facebook Live. We're going to put it as many places as possible, invite the world to tune in. Our children need to know that we have something so valuable here. The neighborhood that just moved into um, the area where Fort Negley is should know that we have this great place I am so proud of the fact that it's still there. I'm so proud of the fact that it's important to the world. And I'm going to tell everyone who will listen about Fort Negley. You know, how does that hit you and resonate with you, Gary? What she said about feeling like her history is disappearing around her. Do you feel that way? Yes, I I do agree with her very much. Um, That's why it's important that we keep the dialogue going and keep sharing the stories not with only our elders, but with the young people, as pointed out before, and that to make sure that these places are never forgotten. You know, I'm thinking, you know, we have Fort Negley and the Bass Street community. We have things like Juneteenth. We have things like Black History Month, you know, and we're trying to connect all of these ideas in a remembrance of history and community. And I'm thinking about all the people who are moving here to Nashville, What do you want to see from the folks who are moving here who may be curious about the culture and the history of Nashville, but that to extend that outside of the old tropes of Music City and the honky tonk scene? Well, we want people to invest in their communities. The uh, people who move around Fort Negley, as much as I'm there, I see people daily there jogging, walking their dogs, but they don't really know the history because it's also a metro park, and that's the way that they view it as a metro park, a place to go for exercise or to exercise their pets. And so it's very important that we engage the community in the important history of where they live and where they dwell. You know, so Janine said, look, I just want to see a master plan, period. Angela, it looks like that is a long time coming. What have you heard from the community? People agree that there needs to be a place where we can have reflections and conversations. Um, you know, Fort Negley Park touches on a lot of really difficult histories for us, and a lot of it has a lot of old wounds that Americans are unsure of how to speak about. Um, there's a lot of interracial dialogue that still needs to happen. Um, there's a lot of reconciliation that needs to happen, and I think that a park that properly takes this history, puts it into the context, right? This is not a black and black versus white issue. It's not a North versus South issue. It's an issue of 
do Americans see themselves as a country of freedom and equality, or do we not? Um, and this is how we should think and talk about it. And if you come to Fort Negley, uh, and if you take an interest in the master plan, we can support those people who want spaces where this history will be remembered, who want spaces where memorials will be present, who want spaces that allow us to interact with one another and have these important conversations and keep having them. Janine, what's your reaction to that? I totally agree with Angela and I'm super, Angela's awesome. She keeps hmm. us informed and I, I just, there's no more I can say about that. She definitely, with the Ancestors Project, we can know who was on the fort and I just, I'm like, doesn't have any words because I totally agree with her. Now, you know, Gary, anybody who's coming, say I have someone who just moved here. They moved here three weeks ago. They happen to be listening to the program somebody who's been living here for 15, 20 years and they're listening to this program and neither of them know about Bass Street or Fort Negley, what is the first thing you recommend that they do to learn more? Well, the first thing you have to do is come to the fort and experience it yourself. Be on the hallowed ground where our ancestors once dwelled. That's the first and foremost. And then you enter the visitor center and learn about the history uh, they're capable of sharing that through uh, social media and videos about the fort and projects like Dr. Sutton has produced is the best way to learn about Fort Nagley and Bass Street. Then chances of seeing you there? <laughs> Always. <laughs> and last question for you. What do you want the future of Fort Nagley to be? I want the future of Fort Nagley to be inclusive uh, a place where people of all races and backgrounds can come and feel safe, feel proud of their heritage, and to contribute to that park and bring something to the table where all can share. It's wonderful. I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show and offering us a little bit of your history and a little bit of the history that we all share. Really appreciate it. That, that is Mr. Gary Burke. He is a descendant of U.S. Colored Troop Soldier. We, he was also on with Janine Blackman of the African American Cultural Alliance. She was joined by Dr. Angela Sutton of the Fort Nagley Descendants Project. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.